Okay, so what I would like to talk about today is the um, primarily the relationship of jhana, jhanas and insight. Something about that, at least quite quite a lot about that. Um, and in a way, it's fortuitous some of some of what came up in the Q and A yesterday um, regarding some of the questions really uh, el- elicited. Uh, a sort of um, outlining, exp- explaining of a kind of a different way of framing what insight could be. So we've already kind of made made good headway with a lot of this. Uh, the insight part, at least. Some of you have heard or read many times this uh regarding the insight part, m- have heard or read that this kind of thing many times. It's been framed to you many times. My, and for some of you, it will be really quite new, really quite new. And so fine either way, my experience teaching this over the years is that it, to really fully understand what, what we're saying here, or rather this frame, uh, this framework for, for for an understanding of what insight could be, or how we can understand the journey of insight and what we're doing, and actually the journey of Dharma. So it's not just insight, meant, it's actually how the whole thing um, fits together and can kind of fit together quite coherently in a way that it just g- goes really into the depths in a very coherent way, um, and the whole Dharma coheres in that. That uh, that framework uh, really takes a while to fully understand so and it it takes really a while to to really understand the implications of it so to me part of the reasons uh, for presenting the dharma this way or presenting insight this way is because of the implications are profound and and coherently profound it's very, very rare for someone to fully understand this and fully understand its implications on two or three hearings or reading or something like that, or even you know, sometimes 10. Um, it, you, you may think you do, or one may think one does, but I w- experience has shown me uh, over some years of teaching that uh, a- actually, even when people think they do, it's uh, there's there's more here to to really grasp this. So if it feels like this, what the hell are you talking about? Um, that's all fine and normal because this is a process of understanding something, and it should be. If you feel like yeah 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 I know all that, then th- then maybe that might be the time to sort of question a little bit. It takes time. It takes repetition. It takes pondering, and again this kind of active pondering. Someone told me they came, did a long retreat, and we worked together, and then they went back home, and very wisely, I thought, we're trying to fit this this framework I'm going to explain about insight and that we've already touched on. We're trying to fit it into frameworks of dharma or insight meditation that they already knew. And so well, it must be a it must just a version of that or, or whatever. And after a lot of hard thinking and a lot of intelligence, I realized that, that they couldn't. Actually, it was something quite different. But the point I'm trying to make is about the active pondering and the active wrestling with something and practice. So it's quite rare for someone to have done all that with, with this. And uh, it's, um, 
So if you feel confused, there's no, y you know, there's good, good grounds for that. Um, hopefully not just because I'm completely incoherently babbling. Um, <laughs> that may be the case. Um, it's also, some of you will know, a lot of what I'm going to say today regarding insight and emptiness in that business forms really the conceptual foundation for soul-making dharma. And it's kind of what gives legitimacy to soul-making dharma and doesn't just um, make you as a soul-making dharma practitioner easily consignable to the fruitcake bin. Um, it's really... Uh <coughs> okay. So, back to repeating a few, some of this we've said already, either yesterday or earlier in the retreat, but still, because it's difficult to really see how it all coheres and really digest that in one's being, um, repeating a bit. And some will be repeat from, as I said, near the beginning and some, some uh, perhaps from yesterday, but perhaps in different words, different approaches. So, perhaps most common in the Dharma world uh, with regards to jhana practice is a kind of you first you practice your jhanas and you get that together um, or, or rather first in a session even first you do your jhanas then you do your insight right and if you're not into jhanas because either they're dangerous or taboo or they're ridiculously too difficult to reach first you practice your concentration you're steadying your mind, then you do your insight, right? That's a kind of normal way of come across that. Yeah, that's perhaps the, the common view. First, the concentration, if no jhana, jhana or concentration, then the insight. But as I pointed out in one of the other talks, and I gave that example when we went through all those Pali words, to me, reading that passage and kind of getting a sense of the context of it and similar passages in the Pali canon, this is really a, a very contrived formula that the Buddha's uh, presenting in a certain teaching situation. The whole thing is probably uh, a contrivance. Um, it's, you know, first you do jhana one, then you do jhana two in a session, then you do jhana three, then you do jhana four, and then you do vyovipassana or whatever. If you kind of get a grasp of the session and who he's talking to, and he's, it's not really an instruction for the meditator sits down and does this thing in order, I don't think. You could, but it, to me it doesn't read, there's not any, anything convincing there at all to suggest that um, this is what you need to do in your 45 minutes of sitting or whatever. <coughs> um, so first, the usual view, first your concentration, then your insight, um, and you can one could look at passages like that and say, well, the Buddha's saying it, look at this. But I don't, I don't actually view such passages as actual meditation instructions, um, really, at all. And again, repeating other stuff we say, we could, you know, the, the, the view that when you're concentrating the mind, um, you're sharpening the mind, you're making it more pointy, its ability to point, and you're sharpening Manjushri's sword. Manjushri is the, the bodhisattva of wisdom. So really what you're doing in concentration, the most important thing that you're doing is sharpening the mind, sharpening Manjushri's sword, in inverted commas, so that your mind and the gaze of your mind and the attention of your mind can dissect the phenomenal world, dissect experience. And in that dissection, it, it 
dissects so finely because of how sharp Manjushri's sword mind has become through the concentration, through the one-pointedness, dissects it so sharply that it reveals the ultimately true atomic nature of things. That there is a momentary arising and passing of five aggregates, etc., uh, through, through time very, very fast. And if I sharpen my sword enough, I can see that. Or, and again, this is all repeat, or one has the kind of view that what you're really doing in concentration practice is gathering the energy of the mind, like a laser beam, similarly. And that laser beam of intense energy gets focused on something. It gets focused on uh, a, 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 a rock, a, a, a layers of rock. And because of the intensity, and because of the power of the laser beam, the power of the mind, empowered, energized, um, gathered together through concentration, um, that laser beam is able to drill down through layers, uh, through rock layers of construction, rock layers of fabrication, rock layers of illusion, all the way down until it reaches something called reality. Or, again, all this is repeat, from the beginning of the retreat, or there's the view that what you're really doing in concentration is making the mind so steady, imperturbably steady, that this unwavering gaze cannot help but see the truth of things. The unwavering gaze, we don't know the nature of things, we don't see the truth of things because our gaze is not unwavering enough. It, it wobbles. We get micro-distracted or, or hugely distracted. We can just unwaveringly gaze at something uh, that will reveal how things are, how things really are. Or there's an idea, and again, some of this is explicit, some of it's implicit, some of it's kind of, uh, you have to kind of tease it out of, of uh, a way of, way of thinking that you hear about. We, or we have the idea, and or we have the idea, that getting rid of thought is what we're trying to do through concentration. Thought is the problem. Thought is the enemy. Thought is the enemy and uh, the obscurer of truth. And that when we get rid of thought um, through concentration, then we, in doing so, we're lifting the veils on reality because thought is uh, obscuring that way. We lift the veils on reality on, on the real world. So there's all of those... Uh, there's an explicit or implicit kind of um, conceptions of what we're doing and, and how concentration fits into what we're doing. Then, perhaps more recently, but perhaps to some degree all the way along the history of Buddhism, there's also the idea that awakening doesn't really involve any extraordinary or deep insight or realization. Awakening, in this view, is just really involves the ordinary sense of things. The ordinary sense of the world that everyone would agree on, but without the tendency to papancha, to gross papancha, that we all know that getting caught up and self-obsessed and making a big issue of this or that. Without, so just the ordinary sense of things, no extraordinary insight, without so much of a tendency or without any tendency for gross papancha, and with a reduction of the three kilesas, the three primary defilements, greed, aversion, and delusion. 
And that becomes what awakening is. Then we have to ask, well, what do you mean by delusion? If you've said there's no extraordinary realization. And in some models, delusion will just be delusion and papancha are equivalent. Papancha, because of its creating all this mess everywhere, is basically delusion. You're believing all kinds of nonsense, all kinds of stuff that's not true, swimming in that, in that murky, turbulent soup, and that's delusion. So that's what you get rid of when you get rid of avijja, for instance. Or it may be that the avijja is a little more uh, deeply defined as, as believing in, in a real personality. Uh, believing in the self as, as a, rea- a reality of personality. So that then, okay, there is this nothing really special changes in there's no special insight or realization about the nature of things just the ordinary sense of the world less papancha less greed and ill will and the end of the belief in the personality and instead the belief perhaps in the process of the aggregates in time the self the true nature of the self is this process of momentary aggregates arising and passing five aggregates of body-mind, arising, passing, moment to moment. And that's, and that's what awakening is, and that's what an awakened person knows. So in that last system, uh, or the different variations of it, there may be no place for jhana practice at all, because why would you need jhana practice? Um, there's no extraordinary, as I said, or deep insight realization into the nature of things. It's just the ordinary sense of things less papancha. Um, maybe jhana has a place in exactly that, in as, as a kind of uh, um, retraining the mind into the habit of non-papancha. So that's what happens when we're in jhana, the papancha just very quiet, very uh, quietens very much, and that's the purpose of jhana practice. You're just getting used to less papancha until the mind is weaned off the habit of papancha. So jhana has its, that's its place. Um, uh, or it uh, contributes to, the to I- I- is that state, or somehow it contributes to the lessening of gross papancha. So there are variations of this view, this kind of view, to different um, degrees. As I pointed out before, all of them, and th- this is really, really key, all of them, quite rightly, need to situate their, the view of concentration and thus of jhana practice coherently within a larger view which must somehow start with where am I going? What is awakening? Um, what is, so the view of awakening which needs to be intimately tied up with what is the view of truth and reality? So they go together. They go together. The view of awakening and the view of truth and reality go. Someone may not have even thought this way, but it needs to be to some degree coherent this way. The view of awakening is tied in with what, what is the view of truth and reality. If I'm absolutely fixed on a certain view of truth and reality, this world as it seems to common sense post Isaac Newton and Descartes and all those people is the reality of things. My awakening or my vision of awakening has to fit into that view. Okay, whatever it is. The view of awakening, tied in with that is the view of truth and reality, and, and drawing on that or, or uh, imp- uh, 
emerging from that is the view of what insight is. Do you see how these fit together? View of awakening, truth and reality, insight. Insight is what opens up truth and reality, and that gives me awakening. And then last stage, within all that, within all that framework, I have to situate coherently what is my conceptual framework, what's my view of jhanas, or, or, or no jhanas, jhanas, what for, and as we said before, what do I emphasize within jhana practice? So what I emphasize moment to moment, I'm really fussing over this, can I blooming well stay with this, with this, my nostrils or whatever. How much I emphasize that and how much I even get upset or not at, at its success or failure in the moment is, is actually determined by this larger scale structure built to, well, how does that, how does my ability to stay at the nostrils relate to insight? What do I, what do I mean by insight is related to what do I, what do I, what's my view of reality and truth? And that's related to awakening. You see how all this nestles together? It must. Now, it needs to be to some degree coherent, but all this fits together in different models, different paradigms. What's also quite common um, is uh, that, that if someone is supportive of jhana practice, then jhanas uh, contribute to insight. So jhanas lead to insight, much less so the other way around. Insight is much less regarded as insight practice, as a process or insight per se, having insights as something that opens up the jhanas or delivers the jhanas. So the causality is one way. And that's probably, again, what most, most of you have come across, right? Jhanas go to insight. <coughs> what we were saying here earlier in the retreat is that um, jhanas are not enough for liberation, which we said, n uh, but they have their part in what contributes to liberation alongside other factors, uh, not just insight, but other factors that we talked about. So jhanas contribute to liberation, awakening, um, and insight is, is uh, or the pool, jhanas are part of the pool of factors that, that uh, open up liberation. And um, insight is a large contributing factor to liberation as well. What I want to say as well is, so jhanas can bring insight, absolutely. Jhanas should deliver insight. And we want to go into, and what we want to go into today is how. How do jhanas bring insight? But also I want to stress that insight leads to jhanas. So another way into jhanas is through insight. Or if you're doing insight in a, in a um, struggling for it, let's say in, a f in, in what I would say is, is the most fruitful way, jhanas are going to be very available on, on that road. And so jhanas lead to insight, insight leads to jhanas. And the question in both directions is how, how. So not wanting to dismiss any of these other conceptions at all, but really wanting to add to them there are some modifications I would definitely make to some of them regarding views about what's ultimately true and what's ultimately real, but it's all good. There is a place for the laser beam. There is a place for uh, all the rest of it. <coughs> but in addition to all those views, all those ways of conceiving um, with necessary ontological modifications, um, 
what, what we would like to say is that an awakened person, as if you're an awakened person, knows something deeply. They know something, and, and to know something deeply means not just as an idea, not just in the head, in the heart and in the being. They know something deeply and they can engage that knowing in their very sense of things. And they can engage that knowing uh, deliberately in their very sense of things. <coughs> it's a deep heart knowing. And what do they know? They know the emptiness of all phenomena. That's what an awakened person knows. The emptiness, the total emptiness of all phenomena, the total radical emptiness of all phenomena, which means a phenomena is empty and it doesn't leave any bit of itself or any level of itself that's not empty. That's what the radical bit means. It goes to its root. An awakened person knows deeply the emptiness of all phenomena. There is no electron no basic unit of m matter that is not empty. Happens to agree with current understanding of physics, but that, that's, that may or may not change. But there's no electron, there's no basic building block of, of matter that's not empty. There is no self or self-view or conception of the self that is ultimately true, say it the other way around, that's, that's not empty. All conceptions, all views of the self are empty. This is what an awakened person knows. The energy body is empty. Space is empty, and not just empty of having things in it, empty of having independent existence, of existing independently of the way of looking, of having inherent existence. Awareness is empty. Awareness is not fundamental. Consciousness is not fundamental. It is empty too. Time is empty, not just past and future, but the present moment too, empty. Awakening is also empty. So this is what an awakened person knows. And to say that they're empty means, as we said yesterday, that they don't, none of these things, no phenomenon whatsoever exists independently of the way of looking. It exists as this or as that, dependent on the way of looking, and it exists as anything at all, dependent on a way of looking. <coughs> it does not fabricate as a phenomenon unless the way of looking makes it fabricate as a phenomenon. So what's that got to do with freedom from suffering? Is it obvious what this got to do with freedom from suffering? Yeah, as Derek said, we only cling to what we think is real, actually. So, when I first started teaching this, and I, I realized I was going on and on and on about this stuff, and then some, some people were just like, well, why are you talking about this? It was just as if it was some abstract philosophy sort of thing. But no, it's very, it's intimately, directly connected with suffering. We, suffering comes from clinging and craving, right? That's pretty much what most Buddhists believe. Right, soul makers, shush. <laughs> no, soul makers also believe that. And we have something else called eros. We're not going into that today. Um, craving, 
Claving. <laughs> <laughs> Craving and clinging are what cause suffering. Take them away and the suffering goes out. You should know this at some level or, or, or you wouldn't be here if you didn't know it. But we only crave and cling to what we sense is real. When we realize something is not real, we don't cling or crave. We don't try and get rid of it. It's uh, it, um, So the sense of self, the sense of an object or other, the sense of time, all these things. So seeing the emptiness means seeing that they're not really real in the way that we thought they were. We say they're neither real nor not real. But that's enough to take away the the, the sense of inherent reality that we usually have in relation to things, dependent on which our craving and clinging gets uh, established, and and, d- and dependent on that craving and clinging, our suffering. Do you understand? This is really important. Okay. Well, how does an awakened person get to such a such a knowledge, such a sort of far out sounding? Understanding and knowledge again is, is in the heart and the whole being. Well, one way, one way, um, is by playing with what we call pl- ways of looking, which we talked about again yesterday and several other times. Way of looking means um, the way of relating, the way of conceiving, the way of viewing, the way of sensing, and everything that's wrapped up in that relationship with any f- any phenomena, any experience perception, experience, appearance in the moment. That's what we mean by way of looking. Everything that's wrapped up in there. And one begins, one one way of doing it, one can begin playing with different ways of looking and one starts to see, like a scientist, it starts to see, oh well, this way of looking, actually when I look that way, like when we're in the middle of Papancha, when I look that way, it actually fabricates um, more suffering. And uh, uh, suffering gets worse or gets locked into place. And it actually fabricates more sense of self. The self feels more solid, more separate, more contracted, etc. It fabricates more of a whatever it is that I'm tussling with or grasping after, more of an object and more sense of time. Time itself also feels heavier, more pressured. One starts to realize all this. And because I'm playing with ways of looking, I also start to realize, oh, there's some ways of looking that do the opposite. They release suffering. They unfabricate the self to some degree. They unfabricate objects and things to some degree. And they unfabricate, eventually one sees uh, the sense of time as well. So well, those are the interesting ones. Actually, it's all interesting. But those are the ones I want to follow and develop, the ones that unfabricate suffering. And with the unfabrication of suffering, they unfabricate self and, and the world of objects and, and eventually time, etc. And one can over-practice, getting really interested in this, and, and also the delight of practicing this way, the, the not just the art of it, but the, the, the freedom that it delivers in the moment. I'm looking at this thing this way, means I'm relating to it this thing this way, and right there and then, I don't have to wait 10 months or 10 years, right there and then the suffering goes out of experience, the self is less fabricated, the object itself gets less fabricated. And this is a, there's release, relief, ease, openness, etc. And all kinds of, uh, we, we could say mystical states of consciousness begin to open because the self and objects and time are not being fabricated in their usual way. 
So other, other senses of things open. Delightful ways of practice. One gets really interested in that. Develops one's range of ways of looking. And also one's depth. In other words, learning to, as we said yesterday, some ways of looking let go of a little bit of clinging. And some ways of looking that we can develop let go of clinging at a whole deeper level, a much subtler level of clinging. And because they do that, they have even more power in unfabricating. Because it's the clinging, and I use that word very widely, but it's the clinging that's, that's fabricating. It's fabricating not just the suffering, but also the self, objects, the world, time, etc. So one, gain, one develops one's range and one's skill and one's depth and goes deeper and deeper into this, learning to uh, unfabricate more through the, through the ways of looking that one is developing uh, through practice. So we talked about, um, for example, pleasure and pain and equanimity and said equanimity is a uh, letting go of push and pull. In other words, it's, a, it's an attenuating, a letting go of clinging. And as I just do that and do that and do that, the pleasure and pain get less eventually. The pain might go to pleasure and then get, get less. I get left with neutral Vedana, neither pleasant, and eventually that fades. Eventually, as we touched on yesterday again, um, eventually everything fades. No thing, no self, no consciousness in the usual sense, no time, no present moment, no space, no world. But it had different names for that. The unfabricated, the deathless, cessation of perception and feeling, the unborn, lo lots of different names. We can uh, open to that, something that's incredibly hard to put into language because language is based on a world of things and subjects and objects. But this is possible for us if we just take this one idea of ways of looking, notice that some fabricate more and some fabricate less and get really interested in that and just keep going. And get all the way to the unfabricated, just following one principle and playing, playing and, and having a fun and a delightful time doing it. But it doesn't stop there, I would say. Some people would say it stops there. Now I've realized the unborn. I would say it doesn't stop there because then one one can also see time is empty as well. And one may have seen that getting there, and one may need additional little ways of seeing that. And also, what is fabricated is empty. Fabrications are empty. The things that are fabricated in this process, they're not real things either. So if time is empty, the time in which the process of fabrication happens also is empty. That means the whole notion, and, and fabricated things are empty, that means the whole notion of fabrication is empty. So the very idea and thread that we were following, this idea of fabrication, ends up dissolving as well. It's empty too. When one had reached the unfabricated, the unborn, whatever you want to call it, some people use the word nirvana for that, there can be an extreme duality between that transcending of the world in the unfabricated and the world. The world of samsara, the world of form, the world of struggle, this world that we all agree on. And then there's this that's completely transcendent. This holy, this essentially worthless except as potential stepping stone to that. Once one has seen that fabrication too is empty, then actually the whole duality collapses as well. 
because there is no fabricated, and without a fabricated, the unfabricated as, a, as an idea doesn't make sense. So that hierarchy of sacredness collapses. Everything empty, everything sacred, unfabricated, fabricated, no ultimate truth, no place that has, ultimately speaking, more reality, uh, no, no view that has ultimately more reality than another. There are only left ways of looking. That's what we have as human beings, uh, uh, an awakened human being. Only ways of looking, a huge range and depth of ways of looking, ways of playing with perception. Uh, and the art of that. And we can do that, and an awakened person can do that for different ends. Classical Buddha Dharma, of course, why do I choose this way of looking over that way of looking? It's because I want less suffering. So this situation I look at this way to reduce the suffering. It's just basic Four Noble Truths in condensed version. When you get into soul-making Dharma, actually you might choose other reasons for ways of looking that are not pr primarily the reduction of suffering. That's not really what you're going for. You're going for something else sometimes. There will often in soul-making Dharma, of course, be an overlap between in other words, when we choose a view that because we want the sacredness there or the beauty or the soul-making, that most often also reduces the suffering, but sometimes not. But classical Buddha Dharma, that's why we choose certain things. Everything's oriented to reducing suffering. So, practicing, what was that word the Buddha used? Mudubhute, mudubhute the malleability of, of mind, the malleability of perception, the, the malleability of ways of looking, of <coughs> views, or we say playing with perception, meaning playing with perceiving. This is a way of construing uh, what insight practice is, playing with perception and seeing through playing with perception what happens uh, when I look this way, when I look that way, when I look that way, when I look at the fourth way, seeing what the perception is. I perceive a certain way the perception is. The experience, the appearance, the phenomenon depends on the way of looking. So that, in a nutshell, is wh what we could say is I insight practice and how it all, all hangs together. Now we can understand, and, and in a way we've hinted at this quite strongly several times already, we can actually understand the jhanas as doing that too, okay? as well as being these really, really valuable resources in all kinds of ways that we've talked about, as well as um, being certainly the way we're teaching them here and the way you guys are practicing, as well as kind of developing our sensitivity and our attunement and all the beauty of that and the gifts that that gives in all kinds of realms of our life, relational, emotional, energetic, soul-making, etc., etc., also for emptiness practices. But as well as resources and sensitivity and everything else we said about the jhanas, we can also view them as playing with perception and begin to understand actually there's one spectrum. There's one spectrum of more or less fabrication of suffering. Dukkha is a better word if we really, suffering is such a heavy word in English, but dukkha. In other words, sometimes you open to a new level 
and you wouldn't have considered where you were before has any dukkha in it whatsoever. And it's only when you go deeper that you realize, relatively speaking, the older level had, uh, which you've now transcended, had some very subtle dukkha in it. So I prefer the word dukkha because it, it because it's a foreign word, it can keep for us a much subtler range than we tend to associate with the word suffering. But you realize there's one spectrum, one spectrum of dukkha. We can be fabricating uh, a lot, really a lot, somewhat less, somewhat less, somewhat less, somewhat less, all the way down. That spectrum of fabrication of suffering is the same spectrum as the fabrication of self-sense. They, they're just two threads of the same rope, of the same spectrum. When we're suffering a lot, the self-sense is fabricated a lot. Much more solid, much more contracted, much more separate, much more... <coughs> but so is the world is fabricated. The perception of the world is correspondingly, it's just another thread of that rope of one spectrum. Is this making sense? Yeah. Um, and so is clinging, if we use the word broadly enough. This end, the dukkha end, has got a lot of clinging and craving in it. And as I said, when, when you start engaging practices and really sustaining them and playing with them, practices that ha uh, 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 take away clinging, craving repeatedly, moment after moment, then we move down that spectrum. And as we take away more subtle levels of, of clinging and craving, we just find it's the, same, it's the same spectrum. So this is a spectrum of suffering, it's a spectrum of self-sense, it's a spectrum of object sense, thing sense, because they fade as well, sensations, things, sights, sounds, all the rest of it, the world, also of clinging and also of jhanas. The whole, the whole thing is just one, do you, un you understand? It's one spectrum. Just different, we're just talking about different, if you like, threads of, of a rope uh, that's, does this make sense? I'm, go I'm going through it quite quickly, but, but um, so, a few little things I want to throw in at this point. Um, and it, this a little bit came out of Andy's question yesterday, which I'm glad you asked. Um, so, uh, after a jhana, in a jhana, or kind of around the territory of a jhana, and Andy was asking about the happiness and the sense of self in relation to the happiness. But let me say a couple of things. Um, in the territory of the jhana, after, in, or around it, sort of peri-jhanic, um, a few things happen in relation to classical insights, again, which is tied into what I've just been saying. We've, we're more clear and we're more spacious, so that something like impermanence is just completely obvious to us. It's uh, just in that space, it's obvious that things are impermanent. Um, also, because of the yumminess of a jhana, whichever jhana, because of the yumminess, it's much easier to see uh, the dukkha, the relative dukkha of other pleasures, or the, um, the fact that other pleasures are a lot less satisfying. So when you tasted a certain, l let's say, e just the, uh, even just a, a really uh, strong piti, and you're really absorbed in it, it would be hard to match that um, with any sensual experience, and certainly the happiness. More saliently for what I want to say today, but these, these are all related because they all have to do with the kind of unfabricating. Um, 
is that in, around, or after a jhana, it's much easier to see that phenomena are not self. They're not me, not mine. It's much easier to see. Um, why? Tying it to what we just said about this, th- this rope, this spectrum of fabrication, which has different threads in it of different things that are, if you like, getting f- fabricated together as one, as one process, just different aspects of the same process. The jhana already, tying it to that idea, is already less fabrication of self. And so because the self is less fabricated, what the self habitually does is also less fabricated at the time. And one of the things the self habitually does is appropriates me, mine, me, mine, me, mine, me, mine. Without thinking about it, that's what the self does. The more self, the more me mining, the more appropriation. As the self gets fabricated, just naturally in the jhana, fabricated less, naturally fabricated less, there's less me mining. And because there's less me mining, less appropriation, um, things are much more likely to appear to us as not me, not mine. Anatta, as the Buddha said, not me, not mine. And the transition from that point to deliberately viewing things as not me, not mine is just a very small step because it's already in that direction. Does that make sense? So there is in jhanas this attenuation, this unfabricating of self, and that and that has all these factors unfabricated together. Self is one of them. However, I, I want to read a note that I got. This is really, really important. Um, you talked about uh, resistance against the idea of having an autonomous self. I felt this was blocking the whole process. So a person reflected on this and then, th- then, then they said, I felt this was blocking the whole process and made me believe that I had matured in some jhanic states when actually this wasn't the case. Today, it feels more like this belief of having matured took me away from actual learning. I then noticed that I tend to stay in a passive slash receptive mode during meditation, but also in life. When today actually I tried to play with active and receptive modes, finally a strong felt sense of I arose. I am alive. I exist. I am alive. I exist. I am here in this world. I can influence. I can be active. I felt very powerful. Now I can actually find my pace and my way of working. This psychological basis made this psychological basis just wasn't developed. Wow, what a blessing and lovely fruit of this retreat. This is really, really important. So it, it, it's important because it stands in contradiction to what I just said, but an important contradiction. So I've just said, your jhanas are about fabricating less. And here a person was saying, actually, by, by the way we're practicing jhana, actually it does um, invite the self to be active, to be more autonomous, to see itself and feel itself as more active or autonomous. That sounds like a more separate and more fabricated self, right? Really, really important. That's why I said, when was it? At some point in the last few days, careful. You may think, or one might think, very understandably, I need a jhana to heal something And it may be more, not the jhana that we need to heal something. For some people it is. They need to just really bathe in that third jhana, whatever it is. But 
probably more often than not, it's something in the ways that we're adopting to work that heals something psychologically and and has its mirror in the life its mirrors it's mirrored in the life that that freeing and that opening and that reclaiming is maybe going to be more significant than, than whether I have attained x or y jhana so uh, i when we talked about this i said you know the um the ability to stay and, and choose to be intense and choose to show up that way, me being intense, and the me can be quite a subtle sense, but it's still, I have to sustain something. Or opening, opening, really opening the being, surrendering, opening, abandoning, or uh, wh- what this person is sharing, or um, the happiness that's a kind of emotional range that I don't usually let do something. There's many, many examples. But here's very important uh, kind of exception. Can you, you understand what we're saying here? Um, okay, so that was one thing. And then one spectrum. So everything's tied in this, w- this threads of one rope. Um, so revisiting our idea of working with pain and being able to look at pain and the pain unfabricates or we refabricate we refabricate a, p- a unpleasant sensation in the body as pleasant pt or happiness or whatever it is so just to be clear about this because it might be that someone hears about that um and thinks well yeah when you're meditating, there's pain. Basically, you're, uh, you know, because of the meditation, you're relaxing, and the relaxation allows the tissues, the muscular tissues, to relax and therefore expand, and they're not squeezing on the blood vessels. And excuse me if my biology is completely wrong, but uh, something like this. They're not squeezing on the blood vessels, so I'm not getting pins and needles, and uh, they're taking the pressure off of the system and the tension and so some pain disappears just because of organic biological relaxation um, reasons uh, so yes absolutely there's a level that that happens there and then to start talking about emptiness just for that would be a complete uh, mis- misuse of the word emptiness and would just be you know easily dismissible but there is some of that going on. There's an organic uh, reality to it. If you like an organic, we can explain it in in, orga- in real organic terms. Let's let's say that, um, or in terms of real real org- org- organicity. Um, secondly, though, is the level of the energy body. So we the, the the level of physical body, muscles and blood vessels and nerves and all the rest of it. But then there's the level of the energy body, and the energy body changes. It's almost like a definition of certainly the first four jhanas, uh, uh, first five jhanas at least, is there's changes in the energy body, and the energy body is more homogeneous, um, more unified, and has a different vibration. But the energy body, you know, another way we could actually understand what the energy body is, is that the energy body is a, a kind of a kind of reality that straddles the physical and the mental. A 
kind of reality that straddles the physical strata of uh, the cosmos and the mental. So that um, it, it spans those, so that it is, for instance, susceptible to the mind state. The mind state changes, the energy body changes. Mind state is obviously a mental, a mental factor. It's, it's extremely um, uh, susceptible and malleable through the uh, mind. And we've talked about using the imagination. Why? Imagination is in the mind and the energy body experience, the way the energy body is, how the energy body is, will, uh, will be affected by what's in the mind. If I imagine this, if I imagine that. So we can we don't tend to think in these terms anymore in our culture. Probably back in medieval times, there were certain uh, strata of reality, reality, ontological categories that spanned both the physical and the mental. The energy body is one of them. So there's that level too, and that's hap that's happening in jhana, and that's happening when uh, when a pain dissolves, etc., through meditation through jhana. And there's a level of this playing with perception, and and that the fact that Actually, the pain is unfabricating, and it's empty, and therefore can be—it's malleable, and therefore can be refabricated. So there's all these three levels: a kind of level of organic reality, so to speak, a level of energy body, which spans physical and mental, and the level of emptiness and playing with perception. And they're all—they're all, they're all uh, part of that experience. Okay, so. Yesterday, when we talked about Bahia and this idea of bare attention, um, which that sutta doesn't use those words, bare attention, nor are they anywhere in the Pali canon, nor to my mind is, I don't even know what the Pali would be for bare attention. Um, but anyway, um, or even mindfulness, the way people, m many people would understand what mindfulness is, or in the past have understood what mindfulness is. Maybe it's changing now, I don't know. It's still, despite kind of not being ultimate, it's still, we can, if we, if we fit it into this whole idea of a spectrum of fabrication, then actually it just fits nicely at some point on the spectrum of fabrication. When I'm engaging bare attention, there are certain things I'm not adding to the experience. I'm not adding a lot of papancha, I'm not adding a lot of views and concepts, and I'm not layering over that way. That's probably how you've been taught about bare attention, right? Not to lay. So I'm doing a similar thing here. When we talked yesterday about taking things out of the way of looking that are automatically there. Also in bare attention or mindfulness, the stuff we're taking out. Um, so it's a relatively skillful way of looking. It's, there's a modicum in it of a modicum of unfabrication, or it involves a modicum to a degree where we're fabricating less. You understand? The mistake would be to think that what we sense through bare attention is an unfabricated reality. Then I've approached this whole question of fabrication with a presupposition of where where unfabricating stops, of what actually is real and is not. Do you understand? It makes a huge difference. I'll come back to this. The concept that I've started with was limited. It wasn't an open-ended investigation, despite whatever rhetoric uh, might be dressing it up in. I've actually limited something. I arrive at that limit, and then I call it ultimate reality. 
It's still very skillful, though. On this rope of un unfabricating, on this spectrum of unfabricating, it's still somewhere. It's just, it's kind of more up this end, but still, relatively speaking, less suffering, less self, less, less all the rest of it. Okay. Okay. So, think, thinking about the jhanas and their relationship to insight. Um, I mentioned this phrase that I, that I use, it must be a more elegant phrase, but I, I, I call what I call after effects on perception. Okay. And this to me is hugely significant, uh, this idea of the after effects of certain states of consciousness on our perception. Because those after effects imply something about the dependent arising uh, of experience, and they uh, correspondingly they imply something about the emptiness of of our perceptions so these after effects as we move through more territory jhanically and in other kinds of states we uh, there's a spilling over outside of the meditation into how we sense the world after effects on perception out there on the lawn out there on your walk whatever it is out there in the with the lunch bowl in front of you whatever and uh, they open new worlds and new experiences for us. So usually, um, this becomes, I'm mentioning it now, I was humming and hawing whether to give the talk on the fifth jhana, the realm of infinite space, before I gave this one. Anyway, I decided this way. But usually this business about after effects on perception gets really, really uh, potent um, with the formless jhanas. But... I tend to think it, it really, s the first kind of glimpses of it is with the third jhana, and, uh, and I mentioned that, this sort of world of peace, etc. Am I going too quickly? Are you following me? Is it okay? Yeah. Um, however, the other day I got a lovely note. This is actually a few days ago, but um, uh, for some reason I hesitate to write these non-questions, non-issue notes, but since you seem to enjoy the one from earlier, here's the epilogue. So this is from our friend, uh, our friend of the Radiant Buddhas, if you remember. Um, seeing everyone as Radiant Buddhas was so lovely, so delightful, that I was back in the second jhana by the time I made it outside. I then spent 45 minutes wandering around the grounds and marveling at how everything, everything seemed shot through with joy. So the after effect on perception is basically the primary nimitta starts to... Uh, color things, things are colored, things are seen uh, that way. I stopped in my tracks and mouthed wow at the sight of the old fruit crates piled by the outdoor loo, the bins by the hermitage, the hedge by the nun's graveyard, the dead leaves on the path, all of it radiant with happiness and light and something beyond, something blessed. And if that's not enjoyment, well, dot, dot, dot. Um, so sometimes this is subtle and sometimes it's very powerful but our, our uh, and, and it can happen from not just jhanic states from all kinds of states I said usually it get the first glimpse of it in the third this person saying no earlier um, but it gets very marked in the formless jhanas can have a very clearly you hear there very uh, profound uh, and touching impress on 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 the being on on the sense of existence and if they're repeated enough 
if it's just a one-off, you tend to think, oh, pff, something was weird in my brain or something, or you forget about it, or it becomes just this thing that I don't quite know how to get back to. But if it's repeated enough, and they can come from lots of other non-jhanic states as well, other perceptions, other ways of looking, going in and out of a normal perception and this kind of perception, for example, let's take from this person's note, in and out, in and out, many, many times, at some point you start thinking, well, well which is the real way things are? Which is the real? Are they not shot through with joy? The universe is just m uh, purposeless and cold uh, or very hot matter in the, in the, in the uh, Newtonian sense. Or is there some way that joy is mystically woven in to the fabric of the cosmos? That joy perhaps is the essence of things the divine essence of things, or that there's a joy that shines through things, a transcendent joy, and that transcendent joy shines through this world of uh, appearances, this world that we call the world, this world that we've so uh, grown accustomed to sensing in other ways, in disenchanted ways. Before it goes back and forth, back and forth so many times, so which is actually real here? Which is real? How do I know? Which mind state, which way of looking, reveals the way things really are? <laughs> do you have, in, in the States, do you have what's called detention? Do you have that? <laughs> <laughs> Or lines, you know what lines are? <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> um, it's good that I've practiced a lot of equanimity. Um, <laughs> so years ago, we did, I think three years, three years, in, uh, three years in, in a row, we did a retreat. It was called Loving Kindness and Compassion as a Path to Awakening, something like that. Maybe some of you were even on it. I think it was, we did it, yeah. Uh, I can't remember, maybe, maybe a couple of others, but years ago, it was, 2006, seven, eight, I think, I, I can't remember. One, so, so it was, a, it, it was also a th like three week or three and a half week retreat. And first week did metta, second week did compassion. And the third week, after people had developed this kind of, uh, really by that point, quite strong current of metta and compassion, there was really, there was, y y people would say you walk into the meditation, it was like cutting the air, it's so thick with love. But, um, but after they had developed that stream, then I gave them a practice of deliberately directing that metta and compassion, not to beings, self or others, but to phenomena. This sensation, the sound, this uh, whatever it is, um, uh, this pain, etc. And I let them cook a little bit, and then I came back and asked them, did anyone notice that when you were doing that, what it was you were directing meta to actually faded. Yes. So there's there's almost a law here, you know. All this dependent that's what the Buddha calls it, a dependent dependent arising is the law. Dharma the word for Dharma is law. To trust this enough that it's like uh, it's like putting a cake in the oven, you go away, you set the thing, come back and will this have happened? And for most people, yes. 
is a law. They faded. Then there's a question. So, or oftentimes, here was a phenomenon, a sensation, an experience, a perception. When I direct the metta or compassion to it, it fades, it unfabricates, it disappears to some degree or other, and often completely. Amazing. Similar to the kinds of things we've talked about. And then you ask, okay, how much metta reveals the real thing or the real sensation or the real self? A, a, a little or a lot? Because metta is a skillful quality or it's kind of somewhere in the middle. We've got to get exactly the, the, a medium amount will reveal the real way things are. Mindfulness, as, as we said yesterday, uh, actually is a composite, or it's all attention. Mindfulness is always with something else, with lots of other things. And those qualities, the, that composite of qualities, determine the fabrication, the unfabrication, the locking into a certain level of fabrication of whatever phenomenon the mindfulness is looking at. Now, Derek might like to say, Okay, not mindfulness, not mindfulness, equanimity, because equanimity gives this sense of balance or whatever. But uh, we've already talked about that. The more equanimity means the, m the less push and pull, right? That's what we've defined equanimity as. Less push and pull is the same as less clinging. If I just practice that, get more and more equanimous, at a certain point, we've touched, we've said this already, the phenomena will fade. How much clinging reveals the real object? Here's this phenomenon, this pain, this even a sight or a sound that's c continuous or whatever. How much clinging reveals the real object? A lot? A, a little? None? If it's none, then where's the object? Because it's completely faded. A, a, a medium? A medium amount? So this is what we mean, or another way of saying what we mean by something is empty. I cannot privilege a certain amount of clinging or a certain amount of metta or a certain amount of equanimity or what I cannot privilege any, any particular way of looking or amount of uh, what's wrapped up in the way of looking that to reveal the real way something is, anything. In other words, it's empty. It doesn't exist independently. And there's no kind of zero point anywhere. So like I said, the formless, uh, when we get to the formless, although clearly someone already had very strong experience, maybe others also as well, this after effects on perception. Um, but when we get to the formless, they, they start to kind of go up a notch in their, in their power and what c they can deliver and the worlds that they can open up uh, in these after effects, um, and the sense of things, the way it can influence the sense of existence, impact the sense of existence, open up the very sense of the cosmos. An interesting thing though, for when you get there, is that the strength and even the impact of the after effect of perception is not actually predictable from the strength and degree of absorption of the meditation just before. Okay, so I take that as good news. You'd think, oh, I got a really strong seventh jhana or whatever it is, and then I go out there and I expect a really strong after effect. Maybe, maybe not. 
or I got there, sort of, it was in the neighborhood of the seventh jhana, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really, I was, you know, not quite consolidated or deep or whatever. And I get up, and afterwards, the after effect is really strong. So it's telling me something, don't worry too much, you know, it's, a, it's sassy all over again. Yes, I go for more absorption, yes, I go for more steadiness, etc., etc. But there's no end to that, and now we're adding, and in terms of these after effects on perception, which, in, again, in terms of liberation, the way I would conceive it, which is a whole different sense of the cosmos, a whole different sense of existence, is what the awakened person knows, how absorbed I am at any time in any sitting uh, may not relate to how much opening there is afterwards in terms of the after effect on perception and the world, the sense of the cosmos that opens up. So to me, that's good news. I don't have to worry about it too much. I've got a direction to go in, but I'll be surprised by the fruits uh, afterwards. Okay, so we said one spectrum, one spectrum of fabrication, more or less, one, one way of viewing things. And in a way, like I said, you can actually put the whole Dharma in, uh, kind of, the whole Dharma can be seen as relating to or pertaining to or even emerging from that one understanding everything we talked about generosity same same deal you know things like that don't seem like they have to do with obvious ways of looking same deal um but to be less fabricated means less less is getting fabricated less is getting built there's less there in the perception so less solidity less substantiality Going back to earlier retreats, someone's saying, well, it looks like things are kind of almost like I could put my hand through the walls. There's a perception of less solidity and less substantiality also to the body, also to the energy body. Another way of saying that is there's more refinement, right? We've talked about this word refinement and like refi- the refined cloth, less substance, less solidity or refining gold or f- flour or something. You know, there's less uh, solidity, there's less substance. Again, something I've said before, if I'm unsure with this new experience I've had, if I'm unsure, is that the next jhana? Is that the next deepest jhana? One probably almost more uh, important clue than any other is, is it more refined? Does its texture feel more refined? Which isn't the same as, is it stronger or or calmer or weaker? Is, Is it more refined? Is actual texture is more refined? There's, I think I'll come back to this another time, what I'm going to say right now, but I'll mention it now. There's several suttas, um, I think I mentioned it yesterday, um, where the Buddha talks about establishing one's, I did mention it yesterday, establishing oneself in a jhana, any jhana, and actually taking that jhana itself as an object on which to practice certain insight ways of looking. Um, this is, we'll come, let's, come back to it hopefully later in the retreat. Um, in other words, you hold that jhanic perception in attention, the primary nimitter and everything else that's involved, and very precisely, in a very exact way, you start removing um, different kinds and levels of what I'm going to call clinging in relation to that jhana. Uh, I use that word clinging to include also appropriation, me, mine, or even me, mine, of the attention, the attent- not just the giant, the primary inimitable, but also the attention being paid. That's also not me, not mine. So 
So clinging is a big is a big word. I use it to mean that and and more. But basically, that's what you're doing with the jhana, and it's helpful because it's a steady object. It's very very steady, and then and then you start taking things away. So this is a kind of very advanced way of practicing, but it's actually very powerful and very available for people who want to go down that road and, and develop it. And what happens when I do that? What would we expect to happen if I do that on the first jhana? PT will s- yeah, oh, I think I'm hearing all the right things. It will fade, PT will stop, or it will go to the second jhana. Yeah, all, all of the above. So it could just go to the second jhana. Why? Because the second jhana is a less fabricated state. If PT fades completely, something is fading, and it will go to the third jhana if it fades completely. But or just generally speaking, it will fade. But the spectrum, again, is all one thing. So it will go down the spectrum of the jhanas. But this fading business is unfabricating business. You know, sometimes it's like being in an elevator and it just, okay, stops at every floor. Uh, but sometimes you're just in an elevator and it just goes whoosh and you've missed, it's just gotten like, oh, everything's gone now. Um, but the, the point is uh, that there's an unfabricating going on. And again, that the, that the jhanic spectrum fits into this spectrum of unfabrication. All right. Why? Why do things fade uh, with an insight way of looking? Why do? Why is there less fabrication with an insight way of looking? That's not a fair question. You have to rely on some on some on something you know, to explain something. You have to rely on something else, right? To to use it to explain it, right? So if we think about the twelve links of dependent origination. How do we explain fading, unfabricating, based on the 12 links of dependent origination? And where does that fit in? Uh, Where? Do you know where exactly? (laughs) No, this is all good. So... Um, y- you're everyone's right. So, um, <laughs> um, so Nama Rupa is the fourth. It, it's presented as if it's in order, but that's not a really helpful way of looking at it. So, the f- usually the first, but it's the first in terms of it's the most fundamental, is Avijja, which means delusion. Um, the fourth one is Nama Rupa, and Nama Rupa, the Buddha says, uh, involves different factors. It includes Vedana and perception. The way I'm using the word perception, going back to the beginning of the tree, is synonymous with phenomenon, experience, appearance, perception. They're all the same thing. Clinging and craving come later, or they seem as if they come later when it's thought of linearly, but it shouldn't be thought of linearly. It should be thought of as a a kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, completely interlinked web that's not a linear process in time. Um, And self seems to come really at the end with becoming and birth. Right, if you if you think of the whole thing in a momentary way, right? But to think of the thing more, as I said, not not linear process in time, not a process in time so much. When I'm engaging an insight way of looking, I'm we've always said what defines an insight way of looking is clinging less, craving less. So it seems to come afterwards, but if we don't think of it linearly, it basically has an effect on the fabrication of self, 
which seems to come later after craving, clinging, becoming, birth. That's where people usually put the self. So you can see that. Less clinging, less self is fabricated. And then less dukkha and all the nasty stuff at the end. That bit's clear. But it works, as I said, not linearly as well. So it will work back to this, what's actually the fourth link, nama rupa, of which one element is perception, another another element is vedana. So that decreasing clinging decreases, they're not on-off switches. Again, they're, they're each one is a slider switch. Less clinging craving, less self, less dukkha, less also nama rupa, which means less perception and, and vedana, less experience and vedana. There's a fading, right? Avijja is the first link, and as I said, it's not the first in, in a temporal process, it's the first in terms of what the Buddha said, this is the fundamental problem. Everything rests on this, in that sense. Um, what's avijja? Avijja is a lot of things. When I'm engaging, or it has a lot of different levels, when I'm engaging an insight way of looking, you could say I'm engaging a view that has less avijja in it. So when I, going back to what Andy shared, the, uh, this, this example of seeing something, sensing something as not me, not mine. To sense something as me or mine, habitually, unconsciously, has more uh, habitual ignorance, delusion, avijja in it than to sense it as me or mine. Does that? Monica, do you understand? No? So let's take two, let's contrast two ways of looking. Okay, one is the the normal way of looking that we have in 99% of our states of consciousness, that it's always something is me, mine, or this pain is me, mine, or this uh, pleasure is me, mine, or whatever. It's always me, mine. I'm not thinking it, but it's just there, me, mine, yeah? That's one. The Buddha calls that appropriation. It's based on a self-view. He calls it avijja. When I engage an insight way of looking, for example, anatta, I'm actually looking not me, not mine. So you could say what I've done there is take away that particular element, that particular level of avijja, which usually sees as me or mine, yeah? So avijja, again, it's not an on-off switch, is how, if it's all like water in some kind of plumbing system, less avijja, no, that won't work, well, drain, <laughs> less avijja in any moment, in a, in, a, in a way of looking, means less perception, means le- and it also means less clinging and less self, do you understand? So this is mapping this understanding onto the 12 links of dependent origination. They're not on-off switches. They're just like, if you put a lot of avijja in your way of looking, you're going to get a, a much more fabricated perception, much more clinging and craving, much more suffering, much more self-sense. If I take away a lot of avijja, let's say I've got it half full, whatever that is, then I'm going to get half of my, pers- you know, being silly, but um, less perception, less suffering, less clinging. Less self. Yeah. If, I t- if I get avijja really, really low, so that's another way an insight way of looking can work. It's not so much by relaxing cling, but actually by changing avijja. In the moment, I'm taking away. Again, I think I'm doing, but I'm actually non-doing. I'm taking away the habitual avijja that's programmed or, or habitual in my way of looking at any point. D- does it make sense? Is how all this fits together with dependent arising. And this to me again is what's the Buddha pointing at when he talk what's the most important thing the Buddha's pointing at when he when he gives this teaching about dependent arising? 
we can get deeper deeper into it than that, but that's that's enough for now. And what one finds is that uh, with a lot of this, and especially with the formless realms, but is, is that a specific insight way of looking uh, kind of goes with a specific jhana or if I practice a specific insight way of looking, it leads to a specific jhana, and a specific jhana opens me up to a specific insight way of looking. So a very uh, good example of this is the seventh jhana, the realm of nothingness. The realm of no-thingness. So that after I emerge, after one emerges from the seventh jhana, from the realm of no-thingness, if the after-effect on perception is reasonably strong, one can be moving around and looking around and recognizing there are things, but there's a kind of more compelling sense that these things are not really things. The thingness of them is an illusion. There are no things. So that the jhana, in its after-effect of perception, has uh, delivered an insight that there are no things. But one can also work the other way around. If in meditation I sit down and or stand or whatever it is, walk, and I engage the way of looking, no thing, there are no things. Everything is a dependent arising or everything is fabricated in this way. It will take me to the seventh jhana. So in specific insight, specific jhana, they correspond and the, and the causality, as so often is the case, works both ways. Or the eighth jhana, one might emerge from that, and one of the senses one can have uh, is called neither perception or non-perception. One of the after effects on perception is all this is just it's just a perception. It's just a perception. And again, one could take that view, just a perception, and engage it repeatedly in in the meditation. Um, and I just sustain that view on all phenomena, just a perception, just a perception, it will take me to the eighth jhana. Cor specific insight, corresponding jhana. Yeah, so it gets qualified a little bit by um, if if you've never spent time in any of those jhanas, but you, but you really engage that practice, I, everything depends on, I can just, y you know, I could teach um, my little niece when she's five, just, just look at everything and just say no thing, no thing, or whatever. It's empty of dependent arising, empty of inherent existence. Just say empty of inherent existence. <laughs> it's not going to take her to the seventh jhana. But if you, if you, um, if you understand what that means, and very, very delicately, very, very subtly, it's not a big cogitation thing, we're really talking about very subtle, delicate, beautiful way of looking. I understand what that means, so that when I say no thing, it's got all my understanding wrapped up in, in the way of looking, very, very subtly, very agile. If I understand it, even if I haven't gone to the seventh jhana, it will take me to the seventh jhana. If I've gone to the, if let's say, um, If I practice, uh, let's say, anatta, not me, not mine, I understand that one. Okay, I don't quite understand this no thingness thing, but I understand not me, not mine. I know, I know what that means. I can make it work. If I do that, and I've already been to the seventh jhana, then the not me, not mine may well take me to the seventh jhana. But if I haven't gone to the seventh jhana before, 
it, it may well not. You know, so in other words, sometimes what happens is people open up from these things as far as they can go. But with training, actually, you can kind of, if they go together, the jhanic training and insight training, you can kind of, uh, you know, stop the elevator. You press the button on the elevator. I want to get off at floor seven or whatever. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, you know, usually we think of insight as something we get. You're meditating, you're being mindful, and you get an insight, even though I, I now really get the fact of impermanence at another level. And that's a good way of thinking about insight. Um, but this way of thinking about insight is insight as ways of looking. Insight is something we do. We actively decide to perceive in a certain way, to look in a certain way. Um, once it gets to a certain level, you know, there's a way that what we're engaging is is provisional truths, if you like, a certain degree of less avijja. So even this thing about no thing is not quite an ultimate truth. It's it's pretty deep, it, but it's a pr still a provisional truth. And what you're really doing is engaging a provisional truth as a way of looking. And through the jhana, you're gaining access to that level of provisional truth, of skillful, skillful uh, opening and perception. Is that okay if there's a bit more? <coughs> so, jhanas then are, as we said, resource, huge resources in all these ways that we've that we've talked about before, um, as well as providing, you know, both indirect and direct insight. Um, and even the second jhana, you know, we talked about. I think I mentioned earlier on the retreat. You know, just to know and really know firsthand that happiness, that degree of happiness, and that much happiness, and that depth of happiness is available and is not um, dependent necessarily on um, getting something from the external world or from someone else. That's an insight, you know. Um, we also talked very briefly about the relationship between letting go of aversion and the arising of happiness. So that's also part of the insight there. Or in the third and fourth jhanas, the fact that that kind of peace, that kind of stillness really happens when we let go of push and pull. So all this is is kind of insight wrap, uh, woven in to to jhanic jhanic uh, openings. So jhanas, what can we say? They loosen attachments, and they relativize objects for us. Meaning our usual sense, our usual perspectives and beliefs about things in the world, about objects, about things that we can get. They certainly relativize, as we we're just talking about the second jhana. They they relativize the the pleasure that we can get from sense objects. Uh, leaving aside the soul-making teachings of sensing with soul, there's, there's no way that one would get that degree of happiness that you get in the second jhana from any, sen any sensual object. It's just of, of a different order, as we said on, uh, earlier on the retreat. In time, or later on, or more and more in time, they... Um, they relativize the nature of objects too, or the relative nature of objects too. So we start so all these perceptions open up, these insight ways of looking, these provisional truths, and we start to see a thing is a thing, it's also not a thing. So my, my very relation my very sense of something is different when when I've seen that. So not just the relative pleasure of something, but actually the relative nature of something becomes uh, well, more relativized. 
So soul-making dharma, just very briefly, is dependent, as I said right at the beginning, on this understanding of emptiness and the flexibility of um, the idea of the potential flexibility of ways of looking. That's at the basis of soul-making dharma. And soul-making dharma, for those of you who are into it, um, also leads to that. It opens up more flexibility and it calls into question the whole idea that there is a fixed way things are. This is like this and that's like that and that's just how it is. With soul-making dharma is another way you can pry that open and it breaks open the whole idea that something is this way or that way in itself. So both uh, insight into emptiness and also the jhanas, they, they uh, in a way, they, they the way we, the way I would teach it, they depend on our willingness to play with perception, depend on our willingness to be malleable with perception. But they deliver for us, they open up for us a malleability of perception, both the, the insight work into emptiness and the jhanic work. And and you know, we talked about that with pain, and some of you have been experimenting with this and been almost startled, you know, at what's possible with unpleasant sensations that they can become they can become pity or happiness. Um, what about the mind? Foggy mind, dull mind, agitated mind. To the degree that I know that it's empty, that's also a perception. I have a perception of a mind state. It's a perception. Everything's a perception. Just a perception. And knowing that it's empty uh, means the implication of knowing that it's empty means that it's malleable. It's not a fixed thing. The mind state too. So that's maybe at some point something one can experiment with too. I've seen it with physical uh, pain, unpleasantness. Can I also see the mind state in that way? It's flexible. And then shape it. <coughs> so I, I, I don't know. I I would probably say that all jhanas um, open up for us or deliver for us a kind of uh, more intuition and intuitive capacities. And sometimes that's related to creativity, like poems and music and whatever else. You know, there's something in the jhana, it's almost like they become sources of creativity or potentially become sources of creativity or creative openings. Um, in, in intuition, let's say, um, but also intuition regarding insight. So w again, one of the blessings of jhana in, in regard to insight is that it opens up our capacity uh, for intuition in the realm of insight. Yeah, intuitive, our intuitive uh, seeing and grasping of, of things, insight. I would still say though, other factors are more important. So no matter how much intuition, etc., seems like it's opening up an intuition regarding insight um, from jhanic experience, I would still say that gets trumped by what our conceptual framework of the Dharma is and what our conceptual framework of insight is. That will be more important. And if that's uh, limit, limited, it will limit what insight is possible. No matter how much the jhanic opening and how much it feels like, yeah, I'm super intuitive and I must be really seeing reality and all that. 
So the question comes back to, is my conceptual, f- conceptual framework for insight or of insight, is my conceptual framework of Dharma actually big enough, helpful enough? Will it lead me? Because it should, the conceptual framework should actually lead me to more insights or actually does it hinder and limit? And that will trump any sense of intuitive opening or, or whatever from the jhana. We talked about um, three ways it's possible to get attached to jhana. It's the last point now. Um, but when we went into those three ways, attached to the pleasure, attached to the sort of self-grandiosity, or attached to view, actually as we investigated each one, we, 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 we well I, I kind of suggested that actually it's more likely that, they, that the jhana experience, repeated experience of jhana releases attachments including attachments to certain insight views. And I gave the example of the sixth jhana and just the fact that, A, one experiences something beyond that infinite consciousness, one experiences the seventh jhana and the eighth jhana, just that, and the fact that it's in the map. Um, Both the map and the experience, uh, the conceptual framework and the experience helps me go beyond. So I don't get too entrenched and too attached to such a view. If my conceptual framework, and I might not even be someone who thinks I have a conceptual framework because I don't like conception or I think it's intellectual or I think it's not the real deal or I'm whatever, um, I do have a concept, you do, everyone has a conceptual framework. It might be conscious, semi-conscious or relatively unconscious, it might be coherent or incoherent, it might be muddled or not, it might be mixed with whatever, but you can't not have a conceptual framework. I would say. But if my conceptual framework, for example, says something like, this vastness of awareness, that lovely opening that I was describing the other way, precious opening, that sounds like emptiness. When I hear talk about emptiness, it sounds like that. That sounds like the ultimate. When I hear talk about the ultimate, that sounds like the nature of mind. When I hear talk about the nature of mind as the sort of ultimate thing that one wants to open to, or the nature of awareness, that sounds like Rigpa you know, the Vajrayana teachings. That sounds like when the Buddha talks about consciousness without limit, without feature, that sounds like the radiant mind uh, or whatever that I've heard the Buddha talk about or other teachers talk about or read about or whatever, etc., etc., especially when we get into Vajrayana teachings. The language can get uh, quite um, confusingly similar and not, not differentiated enough, really, as signposts. So if I've got that kind of conceptual framework and I experience this vastness of awareness and I've got no further or deeper experience than that vastness of awareness, nor have I got any way, any way, I don't even, I don't, not only don't have the experience, but I've got no way of going beyond that experience of vastness of awareness. No way of going further. I wouldn't know how I wouldn't even know how, how to try to go further. None of that fits into my conceptual framework. My conceptual framework doesn't support any of that or doesn't suggest or suggest how. Then I'm limited and maybe trapped and maybe forced into a kind of attachment to a certain view. Entrenched, to use the Buddha's words.
but that doesn't have to be the case, obviously. Yeah. So plenty of uh, is if if I have a conceptual framework that actually uh, can keep going beyond these things, and partly the jhanas as I can be part of that, and they're woven into the same conceptual framework, then uh, and this isn't for everyone, but some people will say oh, that that makes sense and it allows more. There's more potency there. There's more distance. There's more depth uh, potential there, and less less uh, likelihood of getting entrenched in a certain view of anything as ultimate, or or of this is how things are. This is the reality of X or Y, and that's what an awakened person knows. Let's uh, let's sit quietly together for a bit. <coughs> I don't know how all this lands. Don't worry if it doesn't all, as I said at the beginning, if it all doesn't make complete sense right now. Maybe that that's the case. But it may still be, even though it doesn't make sense, that there's some kind of uh, sense of beauty there or something that calls you or draws you. Maybe, maybe not, of course. Some perfume, some sense of possibility. Maybe that's the important thing, if it feels like it doesn't quite make sense. Maybe that's there.
you, everybody. <coughs> um, time for tea. Uh, enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.